Hello and welcome to the CEU Medieval Radio podcast. I'm Karen Culver, an alumna of the Cultural Heritage Studies Programme, part of the Medieval Studies Department of CEU. This podcast is part of an occasional series, New Faces, New Ideas, in which we talk to current PhD students about their research and where it might lead them. Today I'm sitting outside on Gellert Hill in Buddha, overlooking the River Duna, with the birds singing and people enjoying the warm summer weather. I'm here with David Rockwell, a PhD student in the CEU Department of Medieval Studies, to talk about his research for his doctoral thesis. After David's initial training in classical languages and literature at the University of California, Berkeley, he studied law, first at Cambridge University and then at Harvard Law School. After more than 25 years of practice as a finance and capital markets lawyer in the New York, Frankfurt and London offices of a leading Wall Street law firm, he gave it all up to pursue a PhD in late antique history at the Medieval Studies Department of Central European University. David now lives with his partner in Budapest, where he spends his non-study time playing piano, which he says he plays very badly, and cooking apparently even worse. David, welcome to Medieval Radio New Faces, New Ideas podcast. Thank you very much, Karen. I'm really delighted to have been invited on. David, you have as a working title for your PhD thesis, Justinian's conniving bankers, lobbying and the imperial bureaucracy in the 6th century Byzantium. What prompted your choice of this specific subject? Uh, Well, I think it's fair to say that when I first came to the Medieval Studies Department, my research ideas were not very well defined. Um, I knew I wanted to work with a body of law called the novels or the novelli of the 6th century Emperor Justinian. And the reason why I wanted to do that is because um, they had always been somewhat neglected by comparison with other elements of Roman law. They were sort of uh, unlike, say, the Digest or um, the Codex or other parts of the great 6th century compilation of Roman law. The novels, which came later, were not so systematized and they were considered sort of the poor relations. And I thought, well, that sounds pretty interesting. Let's go explore what's there. Um, As I was reading through um, this body of legislation, a number of things jumped out at me, you know, perhaps by virtue of my experience as finance lawyer. And I noticed that there were several elements related to banking, but none of them made any sense. Yes, which is that you had instances of people describing, you know, this particular banking structure as complicated when it wasn't complicated at all. And other examples um, of things that they just didn't sound right. And so I thought, well, let's, let's dig in a little further. Let's find out. And what I discovered is that there's all sorts of evidence in the laws itself, which talks about bankers asking for laws. Asking Asking for law. And I don't think anybody had ever noticed this before. Now, the minute somebody who performs a critical economic function starts asking for regulation, you know something is up. People don't ask ordinarily to be regulated unless they feel that the impacts will be beneficial to them compared to other people who are affected by the same regulation, whether that is customers or other competitors. And that's how I came to, you know, my title, which is, yes, okay, Justinian's bankers, 
conniving for new legislation, what we can see in there is we can reconstruct some of the lobbying efforts that they used in order to get that new legislation. So from the laws and the statement that the bankers were asking for this legislation, mm -hmm. you say you can reconstruct the lobbying effort made by the banking community. How do you do that? One of the benefits of using the novels as a source as opposed to the other uh, sources of Roman law, which is these other sources of Roman law, have been systematized by their compilers in the sense that the individual laws have had their heads and their tails cut off and the individual sections distributed. With the novels, they came later, they were never codified in this way. They were never subjected to this rationalizing system by Roman lawyers. Instead, they were just, more. it's more or less a random collection. And what that means is we have their introductory statements and their closing statements. And these introductory statements actually give the story of how the law came about, where they give a story about how the law came about. And some of these stories actually tell you. A couple bankers came to us and they said, the law here is very complicated, it needs rationalization. And it will discuss the process that was went through. They first petitioned this official, and then the official called some meetings to, for some consultations, and then we passed this law. Now, in this part in particular case that I'm thinking about, which was the subject of my master's thesis at CEU, that law had to be revoked in six months. Apparently, the consultation mechanism did not take into account the needs of some very powerful interest, those who were powerful enough to get the law revoked in six months. And the, the hilarious thing is actually to read the revoking law and to read its words, you know, sort of, we shall proceed as if this law had never existed. <laughs> so the novels sound more like a reporting mechanism rather than um, legal book. Justinian, when he achieved sole power, um, at the end of the 520s, he engaged in a process of what we retrospectively call renovating the empire, renovatio imperi, when he had a number of projects due to, in his view, repair the somewhat dilapidated state of the Roman Empire. And one of these projects was very much to compile Roman law. So he formed task forces to make essentially three things. The first was a code, yes, which compiled all of the relevant um, pieces of legislation by emperors since Constantine. And the second was the digest, which was the, the, the views of certain leading commentators on the law that we called jurists, um, very learned lawyers. Um, the novels were quite different from all these things, which is that these were the laws that Justinian issued after the compilation was complete. And from that period, from 535, really on through the end of Justinian's reign, there was a series of laws, depending on how you count them, 187, which have been preserved to us in other formats. It appears that the novels were never collected officially. Instead, what we have is various collections which seem very unofficial in some way. Um, so what we have today is an accepted compilation of about approximately 185 pieces of legislation uh, that you can go through and use um, 
for purposes of reconstructing history, and not just for legal history, but also for social history. And that is because, unlike the other parts of the great corpus of, of Roman law, we have those introductory paragraphs and those closing paragraphs which give us so much information about the circumstances which gave rise to the laws. Um, of course, we always have to bear in mind that that's information that the people who promulgated the laws wanted us to have. Wanted us to have, or just wanted... Wanted to be the official story of how this law came about. And it should be noted, you know, that that person, or those persons who wanted that story, may not have been the emperor. Because another thing that you get from all over, from reading the novels, was the emperor was a very busy man. He was supposedly sleepless, and, and you know, sort of he worked through the night. And we have... You can see in the laws that there are instances where the emperor simply didn't know what he was signing. And the reason why we know that is because we have subsequent legislation that says, I never thought that that would be the case. But of course, it was, it was exactly what was provided for a year beforehand by his own legislation. Uh, this sort of thing could be a strategy. There's one scholar in particular that I'm thinking of, Christopher Kelly at Cambridge University. He's written a book about how, you know, keeping your bureaucrats on their toes has many benefits to you as an emperor. That's because in a world of very low communications technology, you, as the emperor, would be in large part dependent on your underlings for information. And that gave them enormous amounts of power to control your own actions. One of the countervailing strategies that you as an emperor might use is to have as many things as possible come across your plate and then be unpredictable in terms of how you dispose of them. Yes, I can see that, but why the unpredictability? Uh, precisely to, so that your bureaucrats cannot take decisions on your behalf. They wouldn't know how you would react in any particular case, so they have to bring the decision to you. On reading your proposal for the dissertation, you stated the economic history of the 6th century has been given short shrift, and there's much more research on earlier late antiquity, and later Byzantium. Why do you think the 6th century has been given this short shrift? I think there's a question of periodization, yes, um, with respect to the 6th century that kind of live, leaves it between two stools, so to speak, and that is that many historians of the Roman Empire um, look at the 6th century and say that's already well past the point of what we really consider to be antiquity. That's Byzantium. And yet historians of Byzantium look at the 6th century and say, well, that's really earlier than what... And they have good grounds for doing so, right? You know, sort of, we have a break in the sources around the 5th century, which is the 5th century is very poorly attested. Uh, in for everything except for church history, which may, means that doing history of the sixth century looks a little bit different than you know sort of uh, doing doing history of cl proper classical antiquity, and similar for Byzantium, you know sort of in the sixth century you're before uh, the great disputes of iconoclasm, say, and you are also before the Arab conquests. Right of the of the seventh century, and so people looking from a perspective of, of the history of Byzantium look at the sixth century and say, well, yes, it's our antecedent, but it really is very different, right? And it is in a way, 
and it's also in a way it's populated by less attractive characters. Justinian himself is a pretty unattractive character um, in terms of things, as opposed to Julian the apostate. You know, this great romantic, you know, sort of figure that everyone, you know, sort of either loves or hates, and is hugely polarized. Everybody hates Justinian. <laughs> There's no controversy. <laughs> Um, now, there are a couple historians who've written good things on the 6th century recently. Peter Sarius at Cambridge, who's my external reader, for example, and Jairus Banerjee at, at, at the University of London, have written one, uh, wonderful books uh, and very important books on 6th century economic history. They are both specialists in Egypt. Egypt was vastly important at the period, even though it wasn't the capital. Um, Alexandria was, you know, easily the second city of empire. Rome had was a shadow of its former self by the sixth century, and but for the presence of the Pope there, it would have been totally forgotten. Very likely. Your research methodology is based on new institutional economics, which has been mostly used for research in the economic history of the Middle Ages. Please, what is? New Institutional Economics, NIE. How is it used and how are you going to adapt it to researching 6th century? Well, the New Institutional Economics has probably been the dominant research paradigm for the separate subfield of economic history. Yeah, um, since late 70s, early 80s, it's been tremendously prolific. And it's very interesting. It has one key insight, which is that if you conceive of a concept of institutions, you can look at them, how they persist over time, and they can be any number of different things, you know, sort of from the way your school system works to contract law or, you know, to a, you know, the concept of a corporation. Uh, they're the constructions, economic and financial constructions, that people build in their minds. As an approach, the new econ institutional economics has been subjected over the course of the past decade to a ferocious critique by a scholar by the name of Sheila Ogilvie at Cambridge, who's just had some really pretty profound and productive insights into its limitations and also its continued usefulness, I think. The approach of new institutional economics has been influenced by conservative or libertarian approach to economic history, which focus on efficiency, yes. And one of the key insights that they've done, which is that if an institution existed for a long time, it may have been because it was efficient for it to survive. It had, in a way, if you think of it in a Darwinian sense, it had outcompeted different institutions, yes, and so survived. Unfortunately, the focus on efficiency became almost monomaniacal, yeah, within this literature, which is they saw efficiency everywhere. Sheila Olvey, you know, sort of has really done, I think, the, the, the profession enormous service just by pointing out that there are lots of other reasons why institutions can survive. For example, path dependence, right, which is by virtue of, of decisions that have been made in the past, your decisions that you can make today are limited. Or, for example, um, an institution can survive because this, the interest groups that it benefits are powerful enough to prevent change. But then surely you're saying what's efficient for one group is going to be inefficient for another group. This runs into questions of what are the relevant parameters for defining efficiency. And for too long, uh, that was looked at from the perspective of capital. 
Now, new institutional economics has been used um, quite intensely in analyzing the ancient economy. Yes, it has been a very productive uh, research methodology. Um, however, there have been some occasional contributions which make you wonder, you know, sort of analyzing, for example, the rules of sale of things that are bought, purchased in open market, um, where modern scholars attribute objectives to ancient officials, which cause me, at least, to really wonder. I think it's questionable as to whether many of these officials or even many of the thinkers in the ancient world had a notion of what the economy was as a separate realm of human endeavor. And the great historian Moses Finley, in his great work, The Ancient Economy, said, look, the economy wasn't separated out as a separate area of endeavor, you know, from politics, from society, from anything else. It was embedded within all those other structures. And the idea that we have today where economics is some specialist science is not a model that's really productive for understanding the ancient economy. Now, most of that dispute has been for the parts of the antiquity which are earlier than late antiquity. Late antiquity is sort of added on. I think the insights are also are, you know, equally applicable, which is that the relevant players, it's not clear that they were analyzing legislation, laws, or practices in terms that we would call economic. And that our very approach to calling, looking at economic history is itself a bit of you know, forcing their reality into our molds. And the risks that we have when we apply these forms to the ancient world of how the economy works, we have to be incredibly vigilant as to what assumptions we're importing into our analysis that may not be appropriate. Yes, I can see that. One of those so, might be efficiency. <laughs> well, I was actually going to say one of them might well be corruption. Yes. Um, I mean, you say your thesis, you're looking at corruption in your mm -hmm. period of interest. So what kind of corruption was going on? And did they perceive it in their context as corruption? We do know from the historian Procopius in something called The Secret History, uh, which is uh, quite, uh, there are many views as to its reliability as a source. But there are allegations in there that one of the key lawmakers, that he bought and sold laws for the benefits of people. Yes. Benefit of well, himself or? Well, I mean, of it, the buying and selling, presumably the purchase price was <laughs> for his benefit. The, the implication is clearly that people came to him asking for certain laws. You know, perhaps can you change this or can you make this anew? And the implication is clearly that he received certain benefit for it. And then he, there are many, many views as to whether this is a reliable statement. Yes, I have my own views. I, I think it probably is. But we need evidence of that from the laws itself. We can't just take Procopius at his word. Uh, but he, he himself, although he was a lawyer, can't, at least in the context of the secret history, his, his word cannot be taken just as read. Now, corruption is one of those things that it's always someone else 
my lobbying efforts, when I contact my member of parliament or my member of Congress to, you know, sort of discuss matters of public interest, I'm exercising my rights. This, this is how the democratic process works. When you do it, however, it's nefarious, yes, because you're abusing the system, right? However, if a large bank faxes to the congressman's aid some text of a law, that would be really useful if it could be passed. Again, that's legal, and that's. But again, I think many of us would think, oh, there's a line that's crossed there into, you know, sort of we we don't think that's quite right. Mm. Yeah. But you yourself, you never do anything appropriate. And what's inappropriate is always on other people, mm. right? And that was exactly the same in the ancient world. Yeah. To what extent are we putting our own ethics onto yes. the fourth century? We have to avoid, I think, calling this behavior was corruption and this behavior was not corruption. Instead, what we have to see is that there was a dialogue going on between different competing interests as to what, what steps were considered valid and legitimate and what steps were not, and that those terms were contested and those boundaries were contested. Yes. I think of corruption not as terms of, you know, oh, this as a litmus test in terms of, okay, this passes muster and this doesn't pass as muster, but instead is a, is a dialogue of contested terms where the boundary shifts back and forth depending on who's speaking, who's doing the requesting, who's being requested, what's the nature of the thing they're being requested, and who's making the argument of, you know, that this is inappropriate and for what. There is some reason to believe, based on reading some of the novels, that there were consultation processes that were undertaken before passing new legislation where affected constituencies were asked for their views. Yes, and at least in the 6th century, there were these guilds, not like medieval guilds, but were groups of bankers, silversmiths, money changers, yes, um, who could be consulted also merchants who would, you know, who acted together in a collective body to voice their interests. Um, but we also have reason to believe from some of these things that, in fact, the consultation may not have taken into account all the affected groups, may have been sewn up, yes. We have stories in the relevant pieces of legislation that tell us that this process was, was gone through. However, we have many other laws where, which don't have any such thing. We do also have um, laws, however, which show other powerful interest groups getting for laws. For example, the laws governing how the church could manage its property. Uh, there are many such laws in the corpus uh, of material that I study. Bishops of certain churches were quite active in asking for changes in the law for their benefit. So the bankers... Mm. The ship owners, the bishops, mm. were lobbying for regulation that went to support their special interests. Does this have any echoes and relevance for today? Because there's an awful lot of lobbying and special interests going on today as well. I can flip that around and say that because lobbying is such a powerful and influential force, perhaps we are more sensitive 
to the ethical issues it presents than earlier generations of scholars would have been. Earlier generations of scholars or the people who were actually doing the lobbying in the no, 6th no, century? No, no, I'm thinking about, I'm, I think the evidence hasn't changed, but we ask different questions of it. I think one of the questions is because in our own societies, the exercise of influence um, that goes under the name of lobbying by powerful interest groups asking for legal changes that benefit them, because it's such a powerful and profoundly influential feature of our own societies, we may be more attuned to the existence and ethical conundrums of that than prior generations of scholars may have been, and we may evaluate it differently. Um, corruption in late antiquity has been a big thing in the historiography of late antiquity for 40, 50 years, um, and not all scholars have resisted the temptation to brand, oh, this is corrupt. Yeah, and this was corrupt, and that was corrupt. And brand, simply branding something as corrupt doesn't actually help you understand how it operated. Yes, you need to understand, we need to be a little bit less judgmental about corruption in order to understand how it actually worked in our societies, because that's what will tell us how powerful interest groups acted with one another and how they interacted with the, the emperor and his bureaucracy. David, when we were preparing for this interview, you mentioned that the control of information was as much a source of corruption as it can be today, particularly in relationship to the imperial powers. Can you expand on that, please? Um, what are the two great enemies of an emperor's ability to govern the, the far-flung Roman Empire? One was distance, yes, yes and two was slow communications. In order to make a decision to solve a problem that is affecting the empire, the first thing, the emperor needs to know that there's a problem. And we have to remember that if a problem arose in the provinces, well, okay, that problem may affect some people, but there may be other people in the provinces who don't think it's a problem. And those people may be powerful enough to keep news of it from reaching the empire. Because if you think, what were the means by which the emperor had to learn about problems? Well, he had his administration, but they had short terms of office, and they weren't actually all that powerful. The local bishop may have been very much more powerful in turn, because he, that was a lifetime appointment. So maybe a bishop could stop news from that from going, or could persuade the provincial governor not to, not to relay that information, or not to consider it a problem. Um, there was the military, but the military's view on certain things may not have seen certain social problems because the military's view of things was focused on the strategic. Yes. So when we're thinking about this, we have to think how would an emperor know about a problem and how would an emperor devise a solution to the problem in all these different ways. He's actually in a, in a position of weakness right? Because the key sources of information are from people who technically report to him, but they also control the information that he gets. Um, we've been talking about corruption, mm. but a lot of corruption these days 
is identified when money passes hands. You haven't mentioned money at all. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned influence, power, information, not money. Do you want to expand a bit more on money? I can answer it on, on, on two levels. And one is, uh, at, at one level, you know, sort of, how do I put this? Money was physical at this point. There was no central banking system, okay. yes. Um, there wasn't paper money. Money was coin, yes. Um, there are those who believe that there were something, a crude form of checks or credit notes called pitaki, uh, which we have um, from Egypt, preserved in papyruses. It's very unclear how they actually operated. They, whether they were an IOU, a simple, you know, sort of the sort of IOU you would give into your your regular pub, you know, for example, if you were a bit skint, um, or whether they operated in a more sophisticated fashion. Now, what's interesting from my perspective is that bankers operated only in limited respects in terms of money, right? Because bankers they gave loans. But they weren't the most important sources of credit, right, uh, at all, which is that, you know, sort of because they weren't very wealthy and they didn't have access to all that much. Um, wealthy landowners, the notables, the key officials, they were somebody that you would go to for a loan. Bankers seemed to operate in a different area of the industry from what we consider them to be acting in today, right, which is they had no role in money creation. Um, and they had no role in maturity transformation. Bankers seem to have very much more modest and tradesman-like, you know, sort of roles. They looked at coins, yeah? Um, they might act, you know, sort of where different coins were in circulation, you know, for example, in trade. They might test foreign coins and, you know, say, yes, this is where, you know, acted as almost like the, the exchange counter in, yeah, in, in an I airport. I was just thinking yeah. they're, they're foreign exchange people. Yeah, exactly. Are we misinterpreting it when we call them bankers? Yes, there is a real risk of that. Now, my review of the laws indicates that they did perform a very important function in terms of payment services. Um, they act as people who make sure that um, a payment will be made on time, a debt will be repaid on time. And they also, they often served in a function by providing a service that meant that not so much actual physical coin had to be moved around. Right? Because moving physical coin around, especially in large values, could be risky, you know, especially in a very unpoliced world, which late antiquity was. Bankers had accounts, and there were special rules about how those accounts were. You, you know, if somebody wanted to pay for something, you could deduct it from him and move it to the credit of the other client of mm -hmm. the same banker. So, in the way that a money transfer service would work, there's, there's a very interesting papyrus from the middle part of the 500s, I forget the exact year, which indicates that there was a loan made in Constantinople to some Egyptian travelers, which then was to repay, be repaid to the office of the banker in Alexandria. Now, there's an enormous controversy over what this Greek word, which I have just translated as office, meant. Does it just mean a friend? Does it mean a full branch? 
people get very excited about this stuff. You know, we have branch banking in the ancient world. Personally, I think that goes too far. But the, the real answer is we don't really know. And we're talking about on the balance of probabilities, yes, of what we think. What we do know is that at least in this case, it was possible to take out a loan in one city and repay it in another. Yeah? Which is pretty darn sophisticated when you think about it. You mentioned in your prospectus the legal and economic responses to plague mm -hmm. in 542. We're currently going through a pandemic and hopefully coming out of the other side with looking at reconstruction, post-COVID reconstruction. Mm -hmm. Are there any similarities in the plague response to the COVID response, particularly in access to capital and cash flows for businesses? Again, I have to go back to Moses Finley, you know, this idea of there being a, of a separate concept of capital or even a separate concept of business is problematic for this period. Yeah. And as for a concept of cash flow. Yes, well, yeah. Well, the ancients knew when they were skinned. <laughs> There's being skint, there's being without money, mm -hmm. but having an awful lot of credit out there that is due to you. Yes. So you've immediately got that concept of cash flow. You, you do, but you have to collect, and it may be difficult to do so because the peasant who owes you the money may not have anything, yes? Um, he may be dead. His whole family may be dead in the plague, right? I mean, you know, sort of, it was a very serious thing. Um, Again, we have to be careful of the questions we ask of the evidence because, as I referred to Moses Finley before, whole concepts of capital for business, yes, are, are, are anachronistic for the period. It's unclear that they, of course, they had capital and they had income, but whether they thought of it in these terms, you know, is highly questionable to my mind. Um, similarly, you know, sort of whether they thought of business, yeah, um, as opposed to different kinds of interest groups. I think also there's more of a case for it, but it's still questionable uh, in my view. They might have rather thought of bankers and shippers and things like that rather than as, you know, sort of businessmen per se. Um, now, with respect to the plague, um, this whole area of scholarship is a bit overheated at the moment in the sense that, you know, lines have been drawn and people have been painted in corners. Either you're, you're a catastrophist, which was this, you know, destroyed the economy 50% of, you know, GDP, whatever GDP is in the context of the ancient world. It was, was destroyed. Another saying, no, it wasn't so bad. And it's all very heated. And, and I, come to, I come down to the view that it wasn't as bad as the catastrophists have made out, but it was still pretty bad. Yeah, um, there were still effects which in, 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 which in certain localities had very serious consequences for the people in those localities, yes. Um, but whether it completely crippled the empire economically? Mm, no, probably not crippled. It just it harmed, yeah, uh, what we would call the economy, yeah, which was not something that they really had a concept for. Um, what we do see, however, is we do have hints of supply and demand actually working. And, and, that, and that's what's interesting. You know, if we think about the plague is derived from what we know about the economic consequences of the Black Death in England in the 14th century. Because that is a fabulously well-attested period where we have lots of evidence. And you can see as people die, 
when there's a shortage of labor, wages go up. The price of labor goes up relative to the price of land and capital, which actually, you know, for those who survived, meant that they were having increased earnings and perhaps a better living. Yes, it's supply and demand of the crudest sort. And we have a law where the emperor Justinian is absolutely irate about price increases following the plague. Um, and this law tells, you know, complains about workmen, you know, sort of raising their prices. Price increase on labor or price increase on goods? If I remember correctly, it's about the workmen. Um, the way that Roman law worked, you know, sort of often what you did to purchase a good, you would actually lease the services of the workmen for the day, you know, sort of by the day or by, by the month in order to do it. So, for example, if you wanted transport, you know, sort of something transported from here to there, you would lease the, the guy who had the donkey and, and he would carry it. And similarly, if you wanted to build a house, you would, you would lease the services of a bricklayer to build you a wall, for example. Um, in this law, the emperor orders prices to go back to their original state. Yeah? And you, you must charge the traditional prices. Which, A, attests to, okay, before the plague at least, there must have been some pretty remarkable price stability in order for the emperor to be able to just refer to traditional prices. Um, but what, you, what you, you might wonder about is, well, what about supply? If prices have gone up because there's a shortage of bricklayers or donkey drivers or whatever, well, what about how is reducing their prices going to influence uh, the economy? Again, the collection of laws that we have is not complete. Yes, we know that there are laws that existed that we don't have the text of. Yes, we know this because there are references in the laws themselves. Um, we don't know the answer. Uh, to what happened as a result of this law that required prices to go back down to the traditional level. But at least we can see that the impacts of the plague were sufficiently grand that they actually led to the forces of supply and demand functioning. Is there any indication anywhere of how much prices had gone up? The, the issue that we have is the, the text of the law, relevant law, is very short. Um, it refers to some prices being tripled, yes. Um, we don't know how rhetorical that statement is. This is another problem of working with this class of evidence, which is, you know, when the emperor is thumping his chest about, you know, sort of, uh, this is a terrible state of affairs. Well, maybe we shouldn't take every word of his description of that state of affairs as the ultimate truth of the matter. It's, it could be rhetorical, and in many cases it must be. But it's, it was enough to prompt him to legislation, which means that there must have been reports of price increases that reached him that affected people powerful enough to petition him for legislative change. You're now researching banking, law, mm -hmm. law and banking of the 6th century. Mm -hmm. How important is your previous professional experience as a lawyer and in the banking industry? Well, being a lawyer, I think, is an essential part of my approach to the materials um, that I studied. The, no the novels, as a, as a text, right, they have these 
introductions which talk about the circumstances of in which they were promulgated and they have their conclusions which also have some useful information and those have been mined you know for decades now for social history you know very productively um what's been less studied is the actual legal changes themselves yes that are in the the, the substantive provisions of the law um there have been some studies done by legal scholars and scholars of legal history who talk about you know and this usually depressingly takes the form of you know see this deterioration and this decline from the high standards of Roman classical law you know as it is in, in this interminable story of decline and um, it depends on what you're looking for yes um, I think what my background as a lawyer gives me is that um, I'm not afraid of the law. I, I can read them, I understand them, I hope I understand them, and I'm not afraid of studying them. And said, well, why would you do this? That wouldn't work. And so I think I have less fear of those sections than other, you know, sort of more classically trained historians who might naturally um, be attracted to other categories of evidence with which they're more accustomed to working. Whereas for me, you know, sort of reading a series of 185 laws, sure, no problem. <laughs> right? I mean, this is what I did for years and years and years. It's like, okay, it's a law. And the banking side of it? Um, don't think there's too much of comparison I can draw there, um, simply because I think really we're when we're talking about bankers, we're really talking about somebody who are a combination of money changers, you know, the people at the booths at the airport, uh, silversmiths, uh, pawnbrokers maybe, um, people who are operating at that level of service provision of the sort that we hardly think of as banking anymore. Um, so that's one of the things I've had to sort of get rid of in my own mind is not think about uh, all those assumptions that come from having fractional reserve banking where banks can actually create money by extending a loan uh, or where they, they affect the economy by engaging in maturity transformation. Uh, instead, they affect the economy at very much mundane levels. And I think you know one of the main things, which has been surprisingly unexplored, is the convenience of making large payments in the sense that because if in, a, in a world where money is heavy coin, um, in order to buy a house, say, it's an awful lot of coins. could be really pretty inconvenient. If you could just open an account with a bank, you'll credit your account by a notation. Once you've completed your research, what then? Well, I think it's fair to say that given my age and my stage in life that I, I'm not a prime candidate for a classical career in, in academia. Um, would like to think that I would continue, you know, sort of researching questions of interest and maybe publishing the odd article, but who knows what will happen. I think um, I have to write my dissertation. Um, once that's done, I think I will probably go on a backpacking trip somewhere for a few months and disappear from civilization for a while and then go back to London. And um, my place is uh, not too far from the British Library and there are fewer places better equipped to uh, enable research of the sort that I do than that. So I can go and enjoy. I think I have something, by virtue of my background, and approach things in a little bit different way than I think many of the scholars um, who are doing. So I think I have, you know, something that might be interesting to say. Or, um, David, we did a master's at CEU at the same time, and both as mature students. How did you find it? Well, I think it's fair to say that if you looked at my 
CV, my background experience, my gray hair. Very few institutions would have viewed me as a candidate for PhD in 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 uh, late antique and medieval history. But CEU, you know, they have a wider view on these things than many institutions, and uh, they really have been just a tremendously supportive and productive environment in which to pursue my interests. And, you know, sort of like I, I couldn't be more grateful. Well, I'm grateful to you, David, for talking to us for so long. It's been absolutely amazingly interesting. Thank you, Karen, very much <laughs> for having me. It's been a delight.